Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Greg Koch here, and this is the Chewing the Gristle podcast. We have extemporaneous conversations with musical friends from all walks of life, genres, nostril circumferences, things of this nature. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? This magnificent guitar beast blows minds wherever he goes. Funky as the day is long, steeped in the history of jazz, he's just a magnificent creature, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm fortunate to call him my friend, Charlie Hunter. Stay tuned. I'm with the mighty Charlie Hunter. Does things to a guitar that are... I'm going to say fiendish. <laughs> he's playing harmony. And then he's he's leading on top of that. And and you know what? I, every time I see it, my brain just kind of goes skidboidal because you see a lot of people. Well, not a lot of people. There are some people that are very gifted at being able to take like, um, you know, beautiful pop tones. You know what I'm saying? And be able to play the bass line and the chords and do, and do a very clever arrangement that's all inclusive on the guitar. These people are out of their minds. And Charlie not only does that, but he improvises in the environment of accompanying with himself in a way that is just so savage. <laughs> and I enjoy it immensely. But to be able to converse with him today here, ladies and gentlemen, is a lot of fun. Charlie, how the heck are you? Dude, I'm doing damn well. And thank you for that intro because I'm a fan. I'm a fan, a fan of Greg, man. Well, bless you. It was fun to be able to to meet you uh, virtually and engage in a little bit of a jamalama earlier on in the quarantine. Yeah, that was a that was a ball, man. And your son sounds great, by the way. Sounds well, thank you. He is uh, yeah, he's yeah, a BC yeah. sitting right over there, as a matter of fact, with his giant mane of hair. Oh, wow. Yo, tell him, he says. Dylan says, yo. Tell him I said he can go to hell with that hair. He can go to Exactly. <laughs> tell him I said enjoy it while it lasts because exactly. the like, skullet will appear. Exactly. That's like a sub a subheading of youth is wasted on the young. It's in that. It's one of the bullet points. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. But it is kind of fun being in quarantine with the boy because we can rock out at will. Yeah, well, that's killer. Within reason, because my I, I have four kids. He's the oldest of four. Oh, wow. And so I got uh, two girls are immediately below him and then a son. So I've got he's 25. I got 23. I got 19. I got 17. And then my wife is also working from home up in the the attic frontier. So there's a lot of people to keep somewhat happy here. Yeah. At Cock yeah. Residence. So, I dig it. I dig it. Now, where are you at? What are you doing? What You're out in North Carolina? Yeah, I'm in um, Greensboro, and I know this is not a very flattering thing. I mean, all of the stuff behind me is flattering. It's just my face that's the problem. Um, no, it's uh, <laughs> I'm in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina. We, my wife and I, we have two kids. I, we have 19 and 17. Uh-huh. Um, and we moved here from Jersey about two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, and I really dig it. I dig it here. I needed to I needed to, to downshift from fifth gear to second gear and stop paying the insane amount of money. I mean, I was just on the road all the time and I was just like on a hamster wheel that kept getting sped up. And I was on the wheel and I was getting the money. And the second I got the money, it went out of my hand to pay for shit in a place that I wasn't, you know, there that much. And I was right. just constantly on the road to pay. It did made no sense anymore. And I did, and I got, I, I definitely aged out of the New York scene. You know what I mean? I, I just, so here we are. I dig it though, man. Now, how did you end up figuring that that was a cool, do you have some family down there or what was your reason for kind of picking uh, you that know, up? Because, you know, like we both probably been doing the same laps around the U.S. for years, you know, so you kind of learn the lay of the land. Right. And I've always liked this area of North Carolina from kind of Raleigh, Durham, all the way to to Asheville, like anywhere on 40 is is kind of cool, you know. And we just we had a friend in Winston-Salem, a guy named Dave McNair, who is a great mastering engineer. And he was my neighbor in Jersey as well. Um, And so he Winston is just 20 miles from here. And, and we just checked it out. We're like, okay, this is cool. Cause it feels like where I grew up in the, in the seventies, it feels like the East Bay in California. It feels like Berkeley with all the weird shit and all the funky stuff as well thrown in. You know? I like it. 
like the stuff that's not as desirable, but you realize that that's an integral part of the ecosystem. Don't and don't mess with that. You know, like don't mess it. with that. Or this, you're going to hear clapping on one and three before you know it. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your background because you've you've kind of been all over the place now. How much time did you spend in Rhode Island when you were growing up? How how quickly did you move out to uh, the Bay Area? Oh, man, we spent very little time in Rhode Island. Um, we, you know, my the, my parents, it, it's a lo- long story. They were Greenwich Village, like, folksters, you know, ah, and yeah. Trotskyites. That's, the, that's their whole vibe in the early 60s. So they had all of their, you know, they were really into the whole seen then like Reverend Gary Davis and oh, Mississippi yes. John Hurt. Those were their, their homies, you know, and, um, it, you know, they, they just decided to make a family and it didn't, didn't work out. So when I was about four, my mom bought a school bus and we t- traveled around the country on a school bus for about four or five years. You need to talk to my son, Dylan, because that's what he wants to do. He wants to buy a school bus and make it into a schoolie. Have you heard about this? You, you get us old school bus and you remodel it into a, like a, a lair of doom. So he literally went up two days ago to look at about four different school buses. Well, so, does but, he but please continue? Does he want to drive it anywhere or does he is it just going to sit somewhere and be a house? I think yes to both of those questions. Oh, so okay. want, the potential for for movement needs to be there. But there's right. also a great desire to I think I'll park it here for a while and suss out this particular lair. Yeah, I think I think parking it here for a while is a good idea with any bus that someone like us can afford. <laughs> right. They always break down and the and the and the repairs are are legion and incredibly expensive. Yeah, okay. You this know is, this is good information to know, Dylan. I'll be talking to him later about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we ended up you know, we ended up in Berkeley uh in the er, like mid seventies, like nineteen seventy-five. And um, my mom was, you know, there's a lot of a lot of lefty po- political stuff we grew up with and, and lots of organizing and that kind of thing. And and uh, we, we, you know, of course, we 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 did the whole living in a bunch of <laughs> different places, even when we were in Berkeley. Sure. But a lot of the time was near Subway Guitars, which I imagine if you've been out there, you've have you been there to Subway Guitars? I have not been there, actually. But, you know, the spot the store. Yeah, Fat Dog. The guy's name is Fat Dog. It's, okay, yeah, yeah. It's an. It's, you would go there, and you would immediately feel like this was your long lost home. You know ah, what excellent. I mean? Immediately, you would just be like, "Okay, I'm home. This is cool. They speak my language here." You know. Um, anyhow, she repaired guitars and and blotty blotty blotty. But yeah, I grew up in Berkeley in the uh, Bay Area. Went to Berkeley High at a, a time when, you know, that was a pretty heavy music thing going on there. With the jazz band had a million different notables in it, you know, Josh Redman and Dave Ellis and, uh, you know, Will Bernard, the guitar player. Yeah. I know that name. Yeah. Yeah. He's another Berkeley high guy, Steven Bernstein, Lenny Pickett, um, you know, the digital underground, you know, Alex Skolnick, the guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. He's a uh, dude. He's, he's my buddy, man. We, we, we used to, he used to have his, he was a total nerd and he was like two years younger than us. And we just always used to fuck with him because of the way he wore his backpack, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, but there was a time in like the, the late eighties that me Alex Skolnick, Michael Franti, who's a spearhead guy, uh, uh, Alvin Youngbud Hart, and Taj Mahal was behind because he lived back there. But he was always on the scene. We we all worked there at the same time. Just ha- and this little the guitar store, like this one thousand square foot space. You know what Wild. I mean? Wild. Yeah, yeah. And you know Jude Gold, who was a yeah. guitar. He yeah. he was he was my student at that time. You know, so yeah, it was guitar. It was it was shitty with guitar guitar players. <laughs> <laughs> now you took some, now our very last interview that we did was with Joe Satriani. Now you took some was yeah you know, at that place. Oh yeah, so so and I want to. I have to ask you some questions though, because I actually have some questions I want to ask you. Oh. But um, <laughs> yeah, he yes. Yeah, so there was another guitar store called Secondhand Guitars. And my mom actually repaired guitars for both of those places. And secondhand guitars was like a mile from subway guitars. And I lived in between. 
So I would go to both places and annoy the living shit out of them until they kicked me out and maybe go to the other place, you know. But Joe Satriani taught in secondhand guitars. And it was like a small guitar store with a little tiny, like, 60 square foot room in the back with no windows and joe would be back there like eight hours a day just teaching lesson after lesson after lesson man grinding it he was grinding it man you know and i remember my mom taking me there because i was just getting in way too much trouble and she was like look you got to teach this kid like he's just do something please you know (laughs) and 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 i remember sitting there with my guitar you know because i thought i could play a little bit and um I saw this. I saw what I saw. What I thought at fourteen was like a grown man. He was probably eighteen or sure, 19, exactly. <laughs> come out of the room with tears in his eyes, and I was like, "That's not fucking happening to me. I'm not going down like that, man." <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then Joe. Joe was a great teacher, man, and so he he really tur- got me to turn my my street urchin thing around and and get really addicted to practicing guitar, you know? Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, so when, so was it the environment of high school that got you more into like a jazz vibe or did you just kind of gravitate to it naturally or what kind of happened with that? When you were 14 years old, what were you listening to? Oh man. I, I mean, you know, I was, I was by osmosis, listening to all my mom's music that she had on all the time. She'd have the radio on to her stuff or records. And it was all old blues, like no electricity, no electricity, like all the old blues stuff you can imagine. And it was embarrassing for me because if I brought my friends over and Lead Belly was on, it was like, it was weird to them. It was like there was some weird cult going on or something, you know, because like it wasn't the Beatles or Peaches and Herb or whatever right. was popular at that Reunited time. Reunited. You know? Exactly. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. I always bring that up. It was like one of the first 45s I got was Reunited, you know. Oh, <laughs> I, really, I remember well. Well, we're about <laughs> the same age. I think I, I think I've got a year on you. I was born in 66. Yeah, 67. So. All right. I I remember in middle school when you had to have that learning how to dance segment of your of your gym class. (laughs) And the slow dance song was reunited. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man. But so yeah, she was I mean, listening to all this old blue stuff. That might that must have been cool. Though whatever your parents are listening to, it seems it's just not cool, no matter how cool it probably actually was. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it, so you course. rebelled against this, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if I rebelled. I just was was when I got into guitar. You know how it is when you get into guitar, all these doors start opening up, you know? And um you know, so I was listening. We had a, my sister and I had an AM radio that oh, yeah. had KDIA was the station, which was like the soul station in Oakland. So we got all that great stuff. Uh, and then there was Calex, which was on an FM station, which we could get in the car or in the living room. Right. And that was like college. Really, we you'd have all this weird music on there. And um, and then, you know, whatever our friends were playing. And there were so many guitar players that I just slowly got into this music. But early on, honestly, man, I think you and I probably listened to a lot of the same stuff because I was really into, of course, you know, you're learning Beatles songs. You're learn, trying to learn some Jimi Hendrix stuff. Right. But really, I was into um, like a lot of, um, I guess what you would call roots music. You know, right. my mom had a box of tapes that she worked at WBII in New York, WBAI, and and uh, took all made all these cassette tapes, and on it was all this classic stuff. You know, it'd be like Chuck Berry and like the Burnett Brothers, and and uh, you know Bobby Bland, and then yeah. like Gene Vincent. And so yeah. I really immediately and it got and Johnny Guitar Watson and Guitar yes. Slim and Guitar Slim and stuff like that. So I really it was weird because my friends were into like metal. Or or like Prince or they were into Prince. And I was I was really into this old, weird music. Right. And because of it, I'm sure it was I have to ask you, but I ended up getting a bunch of gigs with guys that were like our age then. Right. Playing like 50s music. So tell me, though, for you, was that the same experience that you had? Did you did you? It was. I mean, I um, 
I was the youngest of seven kids. So, oh wow! Uh, and my brother was the oldest and I was the youngest and there were five girls in between. So I live, had to room with my brother who had all these old records. So yeah, it was all, you know, cream, Hendrix, uh, James gang, all this type of stuff. Uh, and I really was like gravitated to music, like the ins and outs of it at a very young age. So I was like reading, I had this Hendrix book when I was like in third grade or something. And it would mention, you know, Muddy Waters and BB King and Albert King and Holland Wolf. So I kind of did my homework early on. So I started listening to this little radio station that would be on every night at like 1030 on the public radio station. They would play, you know, portraits in blue where they would take a blues artist and kind of give their oral history as well as playing some of their music. So I started getting into it, but it was the same thing. Most of the people that were my age were into, you know, uh, Van Halen or whatever the case may be. And, you know, and I had, I had the first couple Van Halen records. And then after that, I just was not interested in it. Yeah. You, I mean, you have to check it out. Right. Especially if you're that age, you, there's a lot of butt sniffing going on. You had to check it out. Exactly. You couldn't, you couldn't just leave it on the shelf. You know, you, you had to get it and, and check it out and see if you could do it. Right. And then if you could do it, then you would be like, okay, cool. I can do that. Let let me move. Let me, I've satisfied that adolescent need for supremacy in my mind. Exactly. (laughs) But, but, but yeah, it was all the older guys. I started playing gig. Like when I was a, started playing guitar, I was, when I was a freshman in high school or in eighth grade, I was playing late eighth grade, freshman high school. I, I was playing with all the seniors. And then once they went, you know, then, you know, I started doing gigs. All the guys were way older, you know, the blues guys and stuff. And I was cutting my teeth on playing with these guys that, as you said, are about our age now. Yeah. And, uh, and which that- is valuable though, man, which right. Yeah. Because look, because that's the thing that you see with these younger players is they don't have that lineage because right. that's, I mean, I don't mean to, to sound like a douche and asshole, right, I hear what you're saying. That, but I'm just saying that that, even if we didn't know it and we're playing with these crusty old guys that would pay us like 20 bucks a gig and laugh right. at us, you know, we were still playing with people who had played with people when they were young that were old. So, so it's, it's handed down in this long kind of way. And I feel like a big problem with the kids now is the music school thing is not a substitute for that. True. You know, it's not a substitute for that kind of visceral, (laughs) gristeral experience. Gristeral humbling (laughs) and humiliation. Yeah, it was an interesting thing. I don't know if you felt the same thing as well. And maybe it's just speaking to my own dysfunction, which is manifest in several different categories. But be that as it may. I, I remember being uh, hanging out with all of these guys that were much older. And there was a <clears throat> there was kind of this poo-pooing of younger guys playing this. You really had to pay your dues. And I remember at the time of going, yeah, but, you know, Clapton was 19 when he played on that blues breakers record and, you know, and all, all these idols of mine and kind of made it by 21. But these guys were like, you don't know shit until you get older until their kids got to be of the age that they were the wunderkind. <laughs> and then and oh, it was okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. It's so amazing. Listen to that C chord. Little Johnny could really play the shit out of that C exactly. chord. He's good. He's got a gig. He's got a gig. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that so much. Like, listen, you don't know anything. Wait till you, you got to do this. And you have wait till you go on the road. And I'm like, okay. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, once those kids, kids were the boomers were old enough to be there like oh it's perfectly fine for them to have gigs put you know what i mean like whatever but exactly exactly music is music so it's all good i just think it's funny yeah yeah. we just think it's funny (laughs) i just think it's funny and i took down all of the names and numbers of those people and retribution will be visited upon them on kind kind (laughs) take it So tell me about, I, I'm fascinated by the the prospect of you at some point at a young age just said, I'm going to go to Paris, France and just kind of rock out and see what happens. What was that all about? Tell me. Oh, about- well, you know, man, I, uh, you know, I mean, I was kind of floundering around and making some bad choices when I was like in my, you know, 18, 19. Uh, but, and I had a friend who um, was a guy who uh, I went to high school with who, um, 
who was originally from France, but he came over in like when he was like 14. So we got into all kinds of mayhem. At, at, you know, good dude. And he he actually his name is um, Thomas Hollier. And he actually ended up being one of the first guys I knew that bought a computer like ah. back in the 80s. And he's like, I'm like, what, what do you have that for? Like, you know what I mean? I'm like, what's that for? What, what are you going to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, like an asshole. He goes, well, I'm going to I'm going to write a program to do animation on this. I was like, really? And then he was doing this very early animation. He ended up going on to be one of the guys that was like one of the lead animators on like Polar Express and wow. Stuart Little and movies like it. Yeah, he moved to L.A. He followed his thing. He became like a real heavyweight in that universe. It's pretty fascinating. But anyway, he said, my sister has a little apartment and uh, she's going to be gone for a month. So if you want to, if you get enough money for an airplane ticket, you know, come over here and I see, you know, you could play on the street. Um, and I was like, OK, so I had no I had enough money to get an airplane ticket and a mouse amplifier. And then I went and then that was it. I was over in Europe for like three years. And, and after her apartment was like as big as is like a, her apartment was like 144 square feet. You know? Oh, man. And um but, you know, I uh, I was over there for three years. And when that apartment went up, I just kind of was on the street. But if you're an American, like a place like Paris, you are the criminal element. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it wasn't like I felt and I had made all these cool friends from playing music on the street. This one guy, uh, Jean-Baptiste Busugu, is this guy from Gabon in Africa. And we ended up hooking up and he kind of showed me the ropes. Then I met a bunch of other people. Um uh, this guy, Tamongo Van Kaysel, I don't know if you know him. He's an incredible oh. tap. He's a he is like a world class uh, tap dancer and African stilt dancer. Uh, amazing. Like, you know, he goes around the world doing all these heavy dance. It's a whole world world that we don't really know about. But is heavy cat. I met him and some others and they said, hey, man, we, we got to go to Zurich, Switzerland, because that's where the money is. And then they took me under their wing. I went to Zurich. um, but I had to switch to upright bass because it was like a hazing, you know, I had never really played upright bass, but I had decent ears and I could kind of dude playing upright bass on the street, like <laughs> carrying it around was the easy part. <laughs> that was the easy part, you know, <laughs> and it was a plywood bass. And I just remember my, my fingers were taped together and still like raw, like hamburger. It oh. was unbelievable. You know, uh, so I did that for a while. Then, of course, it, it was just all became all about the guitar again and, and played lots of stuff with singers. And, and that's how I started to kind of develop that kind of I stole the Tuck Andrus shit and the Joe Pass, whatever I could steal. And that's kind of where that that stuff came from. So you, you, know? you just learned it by by doing it. There was no like uh, instructional course that you followed or, or individual. You were like, this is what I need to do. I'm going to I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like a great plan. Uh, now that I'm a parent, <laughs> I'm like, that didn't seem like a great plan. <laughs> what kind of plan is that? You know, <laughs> you learned on the fly. So what kind of tunes were these? singers do it was it like anything it was like standards to pop tunes to whatever you just had to come up with a company exactly yeah and also the um like so if i did like little duo things then that was good but the real the only way you could really make money on the street is if you had a group of at least three or four people and you had vocal harmonies because if you didn't have vocal harmonies People, that's one thing people stop. If And if you have dance moves, more people stop. Yeah, I learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Of course, I don't do any of that shit because I don't <laughs> want to do it. So obviously, you know, like I was saying, like I've been doing this thing with this uh, singer, great singer, Lucy Woodward, and we yeah. tour touring a lot. And, and it's just a whole other universe from instrumental music. It's like... It's like when you play instrumental music, even if it's accessible instrumental music, it's like looking for an apartment in New York City with three dogs. It's like yeah. you, one out of 100 apartments you can see. When you get a singer, it's like everyone is like, oh, here's the keys to my apartment. Stay as long as you want, you know? Exactly. It's that kind of Isn't vibe. that funny? Yeah. But I want to ask you, man, um, when you 
because your your style to me is so I think so much about what what we do and what connects all guitar people really is the vernacular of guitar playing. I feel like we learn that first and then we go back and learn whatever theoretical stuff we need to learn. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. But I hear the same thing in your playing. I hear the vernacular, you know, all those playings. And that's what's beautiful about what you do is you have all of those elements, um, you know, a lot like Danny Gatton had some of those elements and put them together. But I feel like you have so many more elements and you put them together into this uh, great style that's your own. You well, know? thank you. I appreciate that. Coming from you, that is a weighty compliment, my friend. Hey, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but, you know, as, as Junior Brown said, I'm just doing what comes easy to a fool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of his, man. Oh, he's fantastic. Well, you know, theory-wise, you know, it, it was interesting. I did go to school for music, but it's because, you know, my, uh, you know, my dad was a lawyer, and all my all my other siblings did, you know, um, not all of them. I think one of them didn't go to college. Maybe two of them didn't go to college. But for the most part, they all went, you know, did straight things. You know, they got yeah, they went to school, got a job, yada yada yada. My mom played piano, and she was, you know, she played by ear. She played great. Uh, but the idea of me becoming a musician was horrifying to my, to my dad. And I've told this story many times, but he talked to every teacher I ever had and said, for the love of God, will you tell him not to do this for a living? And I was like, dad, <laughs> you're insulting the people you're trying to get. You know. <laughs> and, uh, so he wanted me to go to school for music and I, and he wanted me to go to someplace that was accredited because at the time I was infatuated with all things, Texas. You know, uh -huh. so I graduated at 84. So at that time, you know, Steve Ray Vaughn had just come out. And the fabulous Thunderbirds were big. And of course, I was a huge ZZ Top fan, not to mention, you know, uh, Albert Collins and Walker and Freddie King and all these other Texas folk. And uh, I just wanted to go to Texas, plus the food. I was like, hey, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. go to Texas. Oh, and, I feel you. And at one point, Herb Ellis had a guitar conservatory in San Antonio, which sounded like the coolest place ever, but it was not accredited. And I got all the, you know, I sent away for the paperwork and whatnot. And my parents were like, absolutely not. You're, you're not yeah, going yeah. to Texas. So I ended up going to this uh, school in central Wisconsin. Um, it was a university of Wisconsin, Stevens point. They had a jazz guitar degree, but you know, I just wanted to know how to, you know, play over changes and yeah, yeah. read and write music. But fortunately for me, the guy that ran the department for, for a few years there, most of the years that I was there was a guitar player who was not one of these guys. Like you got to play an ES one seventy five with flat right. strings into a polytone amp. He was like, no, yeah. I, I think what you th do is cool, but you could add X, Y, and Z. So that was, that was a good thing for me uh, in terms of being able to, you know, but at that time I'd already kind of developed this kind of bluesy country thing and it, I was able to then kind of figure out after the fact what the hell it was I was doing. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and a lot of those things I learned back then, I, I, I'm still learning about today. I was like, oh, that's right, I remember they showed me back that in college. But really, I majored in beer. Uh, got you, got you. And uh, <laughs> I excelled. I excelled in the fermented arts. I got to tell you, <laughs> there was a period there where I showed great aplomb. But uh, that was a lot. I, I quit all that stuff years ago. I quit like when Dylan was like six months years old I, or six, six months years old. Yeah. Left over from the wet brain. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I quit it all and thought, you know what? Either I'm going to perish in flames or choose another way. So that's what happened yeah. at that point. But I'm right with you. I'm right with you on that, man. Yeah. Yeah. Greg, last time I saw you, maybe I think. Maybe I think it's more shredding last time. I I cannot believe, I cannot believe I drive 60 kilometers for this bullshit and no shredding chicken. Yeah, no, exactly. What is this shit? The Germans are good at that. Oh, no, we probably shouldn't say that. Huh? <laughs> they all do that. I love it. I'll tell you a story, man. Bobby Previtt, who's kind of like one of my teachers, you know, I, I played in a bunch of his bands and brilliant drummer and composer. He had this group called Bump the Renaissance with like, you know, Steve Swallow, uh, Curtis Folks, Marty Ehrlich and Wayne Horvitz, great tunes and, the, you know, the jazzy side of, of what Previtt does. 
and we were on this tour doing all of those jazz things in Europe, all the same like little jazz, um, you know, like community jazz organizations who have like a series, you know, and the people come out and they're always so well attired and, you know, pretty, pretty cool. But, um, the, uh, you know, they expect a certain thing from him. And he had this band called Coalition of the Willing, which was just like, it was some of the loudest shit I've ever played. But it was it was kind of like a roadhouse rock band, but with minimal minimalist composition. So you had to really be careful. It was really easy to fuck the songs up. You had to read the whole and I'm a shit reader. You still had to have the chart because it was so complex in its simplicity if if you missed that quarter note that was now like moved an eighth note in it 32 bars down you're fucked the whole thing is shot you know but anyway this music was super loud we were playing this gig it was in sicily i remember and this beautifully attired older couple they're probably in their 70s they come back and the italian guy goes up to bobby and he goes bobby why why? <laughs> That's that nice was just a shot in an arm, isn't that, it? After you get done performing this music, and why? That that was the mantra for the rest of the tour, Bobby. Why? Why, Bobby? <laughs> it's so good, man. Oh my god! Oh. Ridiculous, ridiculous. The great yeah. struggle, as I like to refer to it. We interrupt this gristle-infested conversation to give a shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Cox signature gristle-tone pickups. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Dig it all. Aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about your, uh, so you're over in Europe, you come back to the U.S. of I, and you start your own trio right away. What was your, you're like, I'm going to do my own thing. I've had it with accompanying people. I'm going to do my thing. Yeah. Free flag fly. Yeah. <laughs> the sad, tattered remains of a freak flag. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, your freak flag is, flag is, <laughs> Sir, your freak flag is not up to code. The people in the neighborhood are getting very upset about this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm going to call freak flag Karen down here to have a word. With exactly. Here uh, comes Karen. <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> no, I went, I went, I ended up back in Berkeley in like end of 89 and, um, you know, and then I just really wanted to work on playing. I got a job moving, uh, used office furniture. I worked at a used office furniture warehouse, which was in itself, uh, a thing. I have a, I have a accreditation in scraping boogers, 30 years of accumulated boogers off the bottoms of desks. Yes. Oh. Sweet. It's a skill. It's a skill I have. I'll teach you the dark arts. Sounds someday. like a potential uh, food source. Yeah. It. it <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna puke because you, you had solved this. it. <laughs> you solved it. Oh my god. Soylent Green is boogers. <laughs> Soylent Green is snot. <laughs> yes. No, but I was back there. I got that job teaching at Subway Guitars, and um. Then I just started playing little gigs around the Bay Area, trying. And this guy Michael Franti, he had the, I, he had the, he worked at Subway Guitars, and he goes, "Hey man, I, I have a band, because you know he's a great lyricist and a, and a rapper. He had this band called Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, and he's like, do you want to be in my band? We just got a we got a um, a record contract with Island Records, and I didn't know what any of this meant. I was just like, okay." But I didn't own an amplifier because all I had was a mouse amplifier. And I said, OK, um, but, you know, I make I make four hundred dollars a week at the furniture place. He goes, OK, we'll pay you five hundred dollars a week. <laughs> but that ended up being like a two year gig. And it was a real interesting learning thing because he kind of grew and grew. You know, we started off touring with groups like Arrested Development and oh, Billy yeah, yeah. Bragg and and uh 
we did all these gigs with all these big hip hop groups. And then we got picked up by U2. We were on the Zoo TV tour opening uh-huh. for U2. But really, I just wanted to play. And they were brilliant performers, but not really musicians. You know what I mean? And I was at that point, I was like 22, 23. I was just like, I want to be the next Joe Pass. You know, I need to practice more, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So when that tour was over, I kind of left the band and went back to moving furniture, you know. Um, But then I made my own group with a great tenor player, Dave Ellis, who I I grew up with. and um, Jay Lane, incredible uh, Bay Area drummer. Um, and yeah, you know, we just it was at a time in the Bay Area when like the early 90s, people our age with our same means were opening up clubs in San Francisco. Imagine that That's it was an af- affordable and it was and it was a beautiful scene because we had everybody there. It was everybody from every part of, of town and everyone from every part of town played with each other. And every it was a beautiful scene. And man, honestly, it was really the best thing that could have happened to me because, you know, you could practice and practice and you could play like casuals. You can do this. But when you're kind of playing your own music and even or, or hard like jazz music or whatever it is, and you're doing that like five, six nights a week. Yeah. That's how you fucking get your shit together. Indeed. You know, right? That's how, yep. And so so we were able to do that. And that was a total mitzvah. You know what I mean? Yep. Bring out the mitzvah wagon for that. That was that was a total, <laughs> totally cool thing. So, you know, man, it, we had two years of that and, and we were doing well in the Bay Area. Like I, I was too ignorant to even like have a bank account or a credit card. I just had a drawer with cash in it. You know what I mean? And sweet. It's odd to think that there was a time where people like us w- would be able to stay in our city and and make a, a better living than we could going on the road. That's crazy. But, it but that's, ended. that's so true. The I, You know, that's one of the things that people ask because, you know, around probably around that same time, because uh, it's about the same age I was. I had my own band in this area and I was able to gig, you know, five, six nights a week and I did my own shit. And, and yeah. I, would, I could add tunes to the set list. I'm, well, I really need to really work on stuff with these kind of chord changes because I don't really know those. So I'll just add that into the set. I would do that all the time. I would add in yeah. things that I wanted to work on and I got paid for doing it. So yeah. 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 When you, where were you on, playing? So you were playing like Milwaukee, uh, Madison, Chicago, Evanston kind of vibe. Yeah. And then Northern Wisconsin, a bunch of stuff in Northern Wisconsin, occasionally over to Minneapolis. And, and repeat. It was kind of, it was an interesting of thing. I, of course. moved a couple of years ago and I got a bunch of boxes in the basement. I started going there and I started seeing my schedule for those years. And it was literally the same clubs over and over and over for, for years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you could tell, oh no, we got this little tour where we were, you know, we were here, there, we were in Colorado, or we went down to, you know, St. Louis or Memphis or something. And other than that, same places over and over again. This club in Minneapolis, this club in Madison, this club in Stevens Point, this club in Green Bay, you know, and the Milwaukee ones over and over again. But yeah. th- that was the thing. And then at one point I was just like, I gotta get out of here if I'm gonna make some grown-up money. Yeah. So yeah. Wait, where what did you do after like what what was what did you do after that? Well, what was interesting is, is that uh, when I, I, my wife and I got married when I was 27. Oh, and, same as me. Same, yep. I, same as, yeah. And all of a sudden by 28, all of a sudden we're like, hey, we're going to have a Bambino. And so I was kind of Mr. Mominant for the first few years for our first couple of kids. I gigged, I did my thing. Uh, I did some sessions, you know, you do the do. And I started doing some jingle stuff down in Chicago, which was cool and, and whatnot. And then the Fender thing came. So what happened was I was in a club, these guys from Fender guitar saw me play like, Hey, would you like to, we should get you out in the boat. We should write you up in this magazine and maybe have you do some clinics. I'm like, great. Because every time I tried to get any kind of record deal or, you know, kind of massage any of those levers, they were like, Stand back, big fella. I'd always get, yeah, yeah. Uh, how old are they and what do they look like? That, I remember I heard that all the time. Just oh, like, yeah. Well, we're shit up. We got the age part. We're not too bad. But the, the look part, nah, probably not going to happen. <laughs> and, and the fact that we did all this, it was always, and we had vocals in the band, but it was it was this kind of bluesy, funky. It was probably the closest thing would be like Little Feet. And as we well yeah, know, sure. Little Feet is a, gr- a great band that everyone loves, but not exactly 
you know, historically hugely successful. Well, it's funny. They're one of those bands that they're incredible. And the more you listen to them, the more incredible they get. But then I think they were struggling to be. Yes. You know, everyone loved them. All the very successful people loved them. So they played all these gigs. It was like you book these motherfuckers or else kind of. Right. You know, but yeah, I totally get it. So what happened for me was, is at one point my, uh, you know, my wife, she's a graphic designer and she got a really good gig at this agency and they were designing packaging for all of these, you know, big clients like, you know, Kraft Foods and Miller Beer and this. I could go into a grocery store at one time and say, look, it's stovetop stuffing. My wife did that. And I thought that was very special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was course, cold. Of course. But then at one point she's like, you know what? These I don't like working at this place anymore. I'm going and cram getting, you know, can you can you fire up your thing? So I was like, what do you mean fire up my thing? I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, there's there's only so much firing up that can be done. So um the fender thing seemed like it was the way to kind of get out and about a little bit more. So it was kind That's of a good thing. hustle, man. It well, what happened was is they it, and they were weird. They were they were always doing this to me. It was kind of like, you know, it's like huh. it only get so close. Come, but and don't. And um, and so I, at this one Nam show, they had me debut this amp, and I had uh, worked up a bunch of cool. I had some background tracks, and I had some cool ways of using this amp in a, in a weird way. And I, and I could talk, and they didn't really kind of. Well, I guess they kind of had an inkling I could talk, but I debuted this amp. I said, "Hey, it's really cool. You can do this. It's kind of fun, and you can play this." And I would play this stuff and talk about. And from there on, they gave me this budget that was commensurate with being able to, you know, uh, at least for a year at that point, be able to sustain the home front. And then right at the same time, I got uh, a record deal with Steve Vai's label, which really wasn't a good financial thing for me, but what is a good kind of suspension of disbelief thing in terms got of- Got you. Got you. Know you. I mean? Yeah. And then it got uh, you, it got you to the next step, whatever the ex- next step was, exactly. even if that next step ended up making you have to take two steps backwards it got right. you to the next exactly. step. <laughs> and then the Hal Leonard thing happened. So I had the Hal Leonard book deal that worked in that. And so I, I co-wrote the Hal Leonard guitar method with the original author. They wanted to have a little bit of youthful blood involved. So, oh wow. Because of that, I mean, that's like, you know, the first book everyone gets to learn how to play guitar. And so that worked out and then I did a bunch of other stuff. So that kind of just went from there. So it's always been this thing of putting out records and touring with the band, but also being able to do this kind of corporately sanctioned thing, even though I was never an employee of any of those companies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's an ill part of it. Like you can, you're still, it doesn't matter how far you get in this, in this hustle, you're still the help. Exactly. You know, you're still, you're still, even if you're like the face of something, you're still the help. You're not, you don't have health insurance. You don't have stock options. It's right. just like, hey man, no, no, no. You load in near the dumpster in the back of your door like everybody else. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say, since we're doing our Wildwood thing, the Wildwood thing has been, of all the things I've ever done, and I'm not saying this to be some kind of sycophant, but you know, it, what was weird was, is that this is going back like eight years now. Uh, I got a call from Steve from Wildwood Guitars, and I had done a Fender clinic out there. For a while, I was doing these full band things. So I would go into a place, and it was Roscoe back on bass and Tom Reckline on drums. Oh, and nice. And come in and rock people's brains. Oh, hell yeah. Hell Fender yeah, Fender loved man. it. The stores loved it. So we did one of these out at Wildwood Guitars, and Steve always remembered that. And so I got a call about, I think, about eight, nine years ago now, and he said, hey, I got this idea. We're going to do these videos and, um, you know, all the different manufacturers are going to supply guys. And we thought it'd be cool for you to come out for Fender. And, you know, we're going to do these videos where you just grab a guitar and play it. And then, you know, maybe talk about it if you liked it or not. But, you know, just whatever you feel like doing, but kind of run the guitar through its paces. So I'm like, OK. So uh, I remember the first time I went out, Fender actually paid my expenses. And then Wildwood was going to pay my fee. And it was just like a one day thing. So I came out and uh, I went into this kind of soundstage they have. Steve had all these cool amps behind him. You know, he had four Dumbles and Marshalls and all kinds of... <laughs> and I sat down on this chair and he handed me this custom shop Telecaster. And he's like, oh, this is... Based. And on the screen they had, you know, what the guitar was, the serial number, and the weight. That's all that was on the screen. They said, so here you go, just play and see what happens. So I grabbed this guitar, I plugged it in, and I started off in the neck pickup and did some stuff. And then, you know, did that with all three pickups, talked a little bit. And after I got done with that one video, he gets up and he comes over and he says, 
can I hire you to do this? I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I will fly you out here every month to do these videos. I go, kind of like a job. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, however you want to think about it. And what was so wild about that was, is that all the years I had done the Fender thing and I did all kinds of stuff for him, flew all over the world for him, did all kinds of shit. There was never any guarantees. There was never any kind of, you know, uh, set amount of work. There was no retainer. It was kind of like, this is it. Take it or leave it. And, and I did a, right. it was enough where I was, I kind of enjoyed the loose affiliation because I could do whatever I want. But as my kids got older, I was like, I need a little something that's a little bit more secure. Of so, course. Uh, yeah. And, and they would, and they just wouldn't do it. So now all of a sudden this guy out in Colorado says, come out every month and do these videos. I'm like, okay. And I started coming out every month. And then all of a sudden at one point I was like, you know, I can, I like other guitars too. I like, Gibson's and Paul Reed Smith. So I started yeah, doing yeah. all those other videos as well. And I got to tell you, out of all the stuff I've done from prior to that, from, you know, the, the Fender thing and having the different record deals up to that point and the guitar magazines and having columns and all that other yeah, kind of yeah, stuff, yeah. it all paled in comparison to the videos I've done for Wildwood because there's no middleman. People just in the middle of the night are on, online and there's, you know, 5,000, it's probably more than that now, of these videos out there. And so oh, people, can, people can just see these videos and I'm, I'm kind of playing my own tunes. I'm doing little, not, you know, little quotes from various different people, but not too much as to not get any cop- copyright trouble. But that, you know, it's like one of those things is like we're talking about as musicians, it's like you never know what's going to be the thing that kind of, elevates you to the point where, you know, you're, you know, I, I love going out there. And of course I haven't gone out there because of COVID, but I'm doing these, these types of things from home, but it's weird. I'm like, I basically, I could say and play whatever I want within reason. You know, obviously I'm not going to go off on some kind of controversial diatribe during, right. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's, it's been fantastic. So, and it's um, it's been one of those things where, uh, you know, as a musician, you never know what's the thing that all of a sudden, oh, I guess they want you to right. do that and you like it and you do it. And all of a sudden, you know, you got a couple of uh, ducats to rub together. You, I mean, you're, you're so right, man. It's like people at the level that you're playing, you know, every and, and it's the same with me. It's the same with everyone that we know. You bust your ass, you have the calling, you get in there, you sacrifice, you push the van uphill with the brake on with people throwing garbage at you, and you still do it every day, right? But the thing people don't realize is when you're young, you're like, yes, I'm going to take over the world with my mastery. Exactly. Watch out, world. Here I come. Exactly. It's just like, boy, I'm going to show them. And then, you know, you've essentially been learning how to swim in a very calm swimming pool. You jump into the the world of making a living as a musician and it's like, wow, these are raging rapids. And right. I'm not I'm not as good of a swimmer as I thought. Oh, OK, <laughs> let me grab onto this branch, you know. Exactly. And and that's the thing. It's like it's the hustle, you know, and and you just you get in where you fit in, you stay creative and you you make the hustle, whatever your hustle is work. And man, I've been driving a van for 30 years. I'm a driver. That's what I do. I'm a driver. And then I get out and play at the end of the day. Yep. You know what I mean? And I have friends that have that are better than me or at certain things or whatever. And they have had wildly different hustles. Some of them are in the, the teaching hustle and they teach sure. in in these, you know, music schools. Right. Some of them are the, I play for the big rock star hustle. Some of them are, I gave up this shit hustle. Right. You know what I mean? But, but it's, it's a, people don't understand it's, it's, it's a hustle. And, you know, like the people that come on your, on your uh, Instagram or Facebook and demand shit from you, like you're a, a, you like you're a dancing monkey. It's just yeah. like, Hey, guess what? You should fucking be thanking me. I mean, I I don't want to be in that kind of way, but because sure, I, we, I don't think there's anyone really more thankful than musicians who get to get up every day oh, and, work, and work on this. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But it, but but it is it is people also need to know that it, it's it's a deep hustle, whatever, whatever the hustle we find or whatever hustle finds us, it, it, the shit doesn't end. You know? Well, and I always like to say, too, and I, and I try not to make it sound like Bittersville. 
Yeah, right. Uh, because I'm not. I'm 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 enormously grateful for what I get to do. I'm you know I've made it to age 54. I'm comfortable in my own skin. When I wake up in the morning, I'm just glad I'm waking up in the morning because I look right. back at so many friends that are dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm good. But at the same token, when you know when people like they're obsessed, you know, fans of music, especially with the best or who's under that's criminally underrated, and, right. and I just go, you know what? You need to understand that sometimes brilliance gets rewarded with success, but that's not the rule. Most of the time, it's just got to be good enough, and whatever takes it over the edge is completely non-meritocracy other than brute force and guile. And, and Exactly. And people just have a hard time with that. And it's not being bitter, but it's, it's the fact that's not to say that there aren't some exceptions of people that are just absolutely brilliant that, that became extraordinarily successful. But most of the time, that's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. And, and it also, it also comes out of that narrative. It's the, it's the linear career narrative that's being projected upon people like us who have a totally nonlinear wild reality, you know? Right. And so they, their concept is, well, wait a minute, I'm in sales. Uh, and you know, Johnny over there, he, he sold way more than me. So he has more shit than I have and it's linear. So what they do is they look at someone, well, wait a minute. I mean, Greg Koch is, that's one of the baddest guitar players I know. That's like my favorite thing, but he can't be as good as the guy in Flock of Seagulls because right. they're so much bigger than him. So it's a it's it and and good is in music is a relative concept, of course. Right. Right, of but course. Um, yeah. but it it creates this cognitive dissonance, and I think most people just say they just f can't deal with it. I mean, I'll tell you a story. There was a time when when we were kind of I had a group that the jam band kids kind of liked. So we got oh, a lot yeah. of those gigs and those guys got money. You know right. what I mean? So I was like, well, I'm not going to say no to this. And we were opening up for a band, which will go unnamed because again, no bitterness either. Like it's right. how they figured out a way and they're beautiful people. They could barely play. I mean, they really had a hard time. They just didn't understand music like on a, on a kind of a, it, the level you need to understand it to be able to to harness the the narrative of it, you know, sure. and, um, you know, and they kept wanting me to sit in and I kept trying to not sit in to be respectful, though. But one night I kind of had to. And and it was it was rough, man. It was definitely like it was it was rough. And it was funny. Their road manager, super smart woman really sharp and everything. She, she came up to me, like put a hand on my shoulder and she was like, it's okay. You'll learn it someday. You'll learn how to play like them someday. <laughs> Pretty please. I was like, I was like boy, I, I didn't say anything. I was like, yeah, thank you. You know, I was like, boy, oh. I, I was thinking in my heart, like, boy, I hope not because I don't mind the success thing. I mean, look, man, we have homes, we can eat, we can right. provide for our family. And every day we get to wake up and try to try to, to polish the turret a little more. You know exactly. what I mean? Well, that's the so, that's what true success is. As far as I'm concerned, people say, absolutely. Well, it's like, listen, if you can do what you love doing and get, you know, be able to sustain yourself and enjoy what you do every morning when you get up out of bed and you have your health and you've managed to be able to maintain relationships. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> that success, because, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always I like reading autobiographies of musicians and. Oh, yeah. And so on and so forth. And if they have one theme that runs through them is that usually their lives are a disaster. You know, with very right. few exceptions, do you read about a stellar, you know, musician who had a good run from day one to the end? Usually it's fraught with all kinds of malfeasance. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, at the end, you know, when I think to myself, you know, I've gotten this far without, uh, you know, I, I feel like I can get on an elevator with just about anybody and not feel uncomfortable. It's like, yes, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, amen. You know, amen to that, because that's that's how I kind of realized, like, look, man, I have to be upright. I've got to, I've got to do the right thing, especially as a band leader. I got to pay people, even if it means I'm not getting paid, I need to do this. I need to do that because, you know, well, number one, it's karmically the right thing to do. Right. And number two, 
I don't want to be 53 years old and looking over my shoulder for someone that's pissed off at me because I didn't pay them or whatever it is. It's just it ain't worth it, man, because it infects the creative space, too. Right. And and, And if you don't make your life about like, I mean, honestly, man, there were many I had many opportunities in my life to go another way and and go big and be the man and do right. the thing. And I was like, now nah, later for that, because it, it just didn't make, it didn't make any sense for me. I had seen it with other people and I knew that it was not the right thing for me. But now would I like to have had some of that money? Would I like to have been paid a few times? That would not have been bad. That would have not been a bad thing. But honestly, man, I really wouldn't change it because I'm sure we're, we're birds of a feather in this. It's just like, look, there's always some onion skin that's going to get peeled back every day with this mystery of why I suck so much and how I can get better. And so, damn, I wouldn't trade that for the world. And my friends who went those other directions, they they got driven off course a little bit. You know what sure, I mean? Sure, absolutely. And, and, and then what happens all of a sudden, even if you're a really good musician and, and all of a sudden you're like the head of like a multinational music corporation, then what do you do? It's like you become one of those doctors that's like now an administrator. Do you want to be an administrator? Right. Or do you want to be doing surgery? You know what right. I mean? It's just exactly. one of those things. It just depends on on who you are. But I don't know about you, but for me, I, I still would would have done everything the same way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would have I read a few more books, but other than that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was a, it was a long time there when I was, uh, you know, self-medicating that reading a book just wasn't an option. I mean, you get home at night and you, you can't see, let alone read. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, man. <laughs> but then once I got later on, when I started traveling, I started, started reading more, reading more sedition seditious materials <laughs> <laughs> i mean dude it gets to a point like where we're at right now it's just anything is seditious just a word is seditious right exactly the, the. <laughs> wow well speaking Boom. of these days you got a new record coming out right well we had it it came out i um i put a thing out with carter mcclain who's a right, great right. drummer i dylan may may know him he's oh, great yeah. and we put out a little thing that you that this is the new shit that, that we're doing now. It's like the ultimate cottage industry. It's, we're not putting anything out on any streaming services because if you're not on the road, why put stuff on a streaming service? The only purpose right. of the streaming service is to advertise for your gigs, right? Right. So if there are no gigs, forget it. So we just made this what we call a play along record where we just played like 12, 11 or 12 grooves and, and, um, and then put it out as a download only, and you just buy it directly from Carter for 15 bucks. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Uh, I'll, I'll send you one. I'll send it awesome. to you. Um, and, um, Thank you. But, but, it's, uh, but, you know, yeah, I mean, that's it. I made, Lucy and I made a record in, like, right when the COVID was starting to happen. We made a record, but I don't know if I can put it out because if you're not touring and you can't sell a record, it costs a lot of money to put it out. And if right. you can't make that money back, it's like, man, it it's, doesn't make sense to put it out. You know, that's the, that's the messed up part about it. You know what I mean? So it's strange times. Yeah, baby. But Hey man, we got our health. So we so, do indeed such as it is, such, such as, it is. as it is. Well, I got our organ, <laughs> our organ players coming down from Minneapolis this weekend. He's actually staying at the studio and we're going to social distance and do our, we're going to try to get this record done because we need, we, we've just been so overdue and doing it. So yeah. well, probably man, if some- you guys, if you guys are going to spend some time together, you should just all get tested and yeah, then- exactly. Just go get the test and then be done with it. You know, exactly. and then you're like, okay, we can be normal person as long as long as we're in the cave together and exactly. and, and, and oh we have the food delivered, we'll be we'll be okay. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I did the antibody test a few weeks ago. That's probably a month ago now, but because uh, I, I just wanted to know and and I and I didn't have because I was traveling a lot, right? I'm sure as you were right up yeah, to yeah. lockdown. So but apparently I didn't have it. So but you know, those things aren't apparently the antibody test isn't 100 percent either. But uh, it's not. Yeah, I had it, too. I was disappointed. I was in Italy right when the shit was really popping oh. off. I almost didn't get home. I mean, I would have gotten home, but it was it was definitely like last chopper out of Nam kind of shit. You know what I mean? Oh, um, 
but but whatever man so and i had a sore throat and i felt shitty when i was yeah. there i was in bologna so i figured like okay you know what i probably had it and that was my whole the story i kept telling myself to make myself feel better you know i probably had it i probably had it right i had the antibody test no negative yeah <laughs> i love bologna though bologna is a magnificent place the food there is unbelievable insanity man wow so good i think i probably gained i should i shouldn't have had that extra pizza all <laughs> oh, the pizza there mm. yes it's glorious I, sh I shouldn't have had that extra one man well you know we we probably should talk a little bit about some guitar action in turn yeah so you've got you were playing different seven strings before. What's the difference between the stuff you're playing now versus initially oh, when you started doing your thing? Okay. Well, you know, I started with Ralph Novak, a guy in the Bay Area who had this whole fan fret system. Okay. Uh, and and so I was I did we we had a collaboration for a while. Um and then a guy named Jeff Traugott in Santa Cruz made me a couple really beautiful guitars. But you know, people kept coming up to me at gigs and like, hey man, I want to do this. How, where can I get one of these guitars? And it was just like, they were just prohibitively expensive and everything right. had to be custom made. So a guy named Clay Connor and uh, who used to work for Ralph Novak and, and Wes Lamb, who Wes Lamb is a great luthier. He has a, a business called Pre-War Guitars. You may know those guitars. Uh, they're in Hillsboro, North Carolina, just 40 minutes down the road from me. Uh, and they have a CNC machine. And Wes, before he did Pre-War, he was doing multi-scale instruments and he built me a few instruments. Um, and I just went to them. I was like, look, man, you guys have the ability to churn these things out. I want to make essentially a Fender version of this instrument, meaning it, it's not a Fender guitar, but the same right. kind of production, uh, you know, comp concept as, sure. as, as he was doing it, it just so that you can make an affordable, a great affordable instrument. You know, uh, and so we made sevens and eights. And now I'm playing this thing that I call the big six, which is like it's kind of the one I love the most now because okay. it's got a real bass range on it. Like it's it's like 30 to uh, 26. Um, there, we're going to we're making one that's 30 to 27 with the scale lengths. Uh, and these guitars are it's called hybrid guitars. I'm, I, you know, full uh, disclosure, I am a part owner of it but dude they're the guitars i play and they're like the best ones i've had and Excellent. normal humans can buy them and decide like man do i want to go down this road you know um for instance like the big six if you there's a short scale which is like 28 to 25 and a half and a long scale if you're a bass player you get the long scale if you're a guitar player and you wanted to fuck around with what i do you get the shorter one and you're like ah this is cool, but I'm just going to tune it like a baritone. And then we tune it like a baritone. You're in heaven because 28 on the bottom and 25 and a half on the top, man, it just yeah. sounds so even throughout the whole thing. And a two and a half inch fan. Um, I don't know if you've tried these kinds of guitars. No, I, I, well, before. I tried uh, Tosin Abbasi's guitar. Yeah. Yeah. His is a small fan to like a two inch fan or something. They're not hard to, to get used to. They're pretty they kind of fall right under your fingers, you know. Right. But but anyway, so these these hybrid guitars are they're damn good. And, you know, I, I couldn't be happier. And, and it's like I'm 40 minutes down the road. So every couple of weeks I go down there and kind of R&D stuff and try instruments out and call my friends up and say, hey, would you be interested in trying this? Blah, 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 kind of thing. And and um, it's pretty damn cool, man. You that know, sounds cool. Well, they sound glorious. I mean. When you're working out tunes now, I mean, I mean, I know just vaguely, I'm nowhere near what you're doing, but the, um, you know, just when I got into the Chet Atkins stuff and I, I finally, it started to appear before my mind's eye of, oh, the bass line is over here. The chords are here and the top part's over here. You can kind of segregate it in your mind and it kind of makes sense. But what you're doing is like a, is like that times a hundred. So when you're working out something now, do you still do it piecemeal or you're to the point now where you can automatically segregate that baseline in your mind as well as the chords before you start doing a lead on top of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, when I began, yeah, definitely. When I was first starting out, you really had to pull stuff apart and isolate it. Right. But 
and I was trying to do all my show off shit then too. Like I got to make sure I get all of my jazz licks in here and I show everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I got to make sure I show everyone that I know these chord changes, you know, (laughs) but really as time went by, I realized that what the instrument does is, is it doesn't do amazing bass and amazing guitar. Uh, But what it does, that's really cool is it does this great interdependence when you get the two parts rocking as one it's like right. a drum set player you know you have that kind of feeling of 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 being in the contrapuntally being in the flow of the music and and then time and feel becomes of the utmost importance you right. know uh and you don't need to play uh you know it doesn't for instance, like if you or I played together, which I hope we get a chance to, yes. it would really be great because I can't play any of the stuff that you play. I would just be grooving, but being a guitar player, I would know within the groove what the right shit to play was underneath what you're playing. You right, know what right, I mean? Right, right, right. So, so it's really more about kind of thinking like a drummer and, and you have the harmony going, you're thinking like a drummer and you're just making, you're learning all these um, combinations, counterpoint combinations in your right hand and your left hand. And then you just kind of, you really have to go with the flow and you just try to relax as much as you can, which is hard to do because it's such a frenetic thing. And then you just try to deal with the time and, and just try to relax and, and, you know, listen to the drummer's right hand. You know what I mean? Speaking of drummers, the mighty Doug Belote, is a mutual buddy of us. Oh, that dude is what a feel that guy has, man. He's a good man and a great drummer. Yeah, I mean, years ago when he when he used to do some Fender stuff with Guthrie Trap and and uh, he would come out to Nam and we'd hang out and we just we just hit it off because the the hilarity factor was. Uh, oh, was dude, right. his his impersonations of people—that's like black belt level. Yeah. Third dawn level. It's insanity yeah. how good it is, man. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's a bad a New Orleansman. That's right. That's right. Darn tootin', man. Indeed. Ooh. So are you going to be doing any more? Um, I, I've seen various different things of you doing stuff online. What, what's kind of your, are you doing anything consistently in terms of uh, like live feeds? And how how's that experience been for you? Has it been... It's been okay. I'm sure you're doing similar stuff. It's not, you know what I've been doing is I've just been trying to get my recording act together at home and and just try to do some stuff and put out some stuff online and see what happens. You know, I mean, I think it's going to be a while before we get to play again. Yeah, I I was listening to uh, one of the experts today um, who actually has, you know, credentials. And uh, (laughs) yeah, imagine that. And uh, and she said something like, imagine that we are in chapter one of a war and peace like novel. That's where we're at with coronavirus. I was like, oh, oh my God. Oh, oh. I didn't even Sorry, like that. Sorry, folks. Book. Didn't mean to drop the. I don't even like that book. <laughs> <laughs> Napoleon be damned. <laughs> sure, let's do that. Sure. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is the first time we've had a chance to converse other than yeah, man. texting and... Exactly. <laughs> Although the texts are good. Yes, we're, man. We're, we're good texters, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, so good. So There's good. hilarity in our texting. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you stay safe. I would play with you anytime, anywhere. Yeah, I yeah. I would love to do some. Oh, yeah, there, man. So. I, when, when we're when we're able to, I'm coming up there, man. I'd love to play with you guys, man. That'd it be a ball. It shall be done, my friend. Oh, it's well, you, done. Put you the take gristle, care of yourself. Put the gristle on the grill, man. I, I'll be there, man. It shall be marinated <laughs> accordingly. <laughs> All right, man. All right, have a good one. Thank you so much. You too. See you, you, baby. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.